word and open it to Isaiah chapter 30. Isaiah chapter 30. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can grab one from under the seat in front of you. I encourage you to listen as I read the first 18 verses of the chapter as we prepare our hearts and our minds to hear God's word. The word of God says this. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine and make an alliance but not of my spirit in order to add sin to sin. Who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore, the safety of Pharaoh will be your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt your humiliation. For their princes are at Zoan and their ambassadors arrive at Hanes. Everyone will be ashamed because of a people who cannot profit them, who are not for help or for profit, but for shame and also for reproach. The oracle concerning the beasts of the Negev through a land of distress and anguish. From where come lioness and lion, viper and flying serpent. They carry their riches on the backs of young donkeys and their treasures on camel's humps. To a people who cannot profit them, even Egypt, whose help is vain and empty. Therefore I have called her Rahab, who has been exterminated. Now go, write it on a tablet before them, and inscribe it on a scroll, that they may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words and prophesy illusions. Get out of the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar so ruthlessly shattered that a shard will not be found among its pieces to take a fire from the hearth or to scoop some water from a cistern. For thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in repentance and rest you will be saved, in quietness and trust is your strength, but you were not willing. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses, therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses, therefore those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man, you will flee at the threat of five, until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal on a hill. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. Let's pray and ask for God's blessing on the preaching of his word now. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We ask that you would speak to us through it now, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to know what you would have for us from your word this morning. May we look upon the grace that you offer to us in your covenant in Christ. May we cling to that grace as our only hope and our only comfort. 
Help us to be attentive to your words. Help our minds and our hearts to receive it with gladness. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Reaching back to the opening verse of his prophecy, Isaiah pronounces a woe. And the woe that he pronounces here is upon the the children of Judah, of Jerusalem. He's acknowledging during this whole time that we've been looking at his words given to him by the Holy Spirit, He's acknowledging the responsibility of of political and spiritual leaders for the direction of the nation, but he doesn't spare the common person. He doesn't spare the masses from their share of responsibility. He labels them as what? Rebellious children. Rebellious children. And that's really enough to kind of invoke the law of Moses, really, against a rebellious son who was not accepting discipline. The penalty of a rebellious son that is not accepting discipline in the Old Testament is, if you remember, if you've looked at it with us, is death. Isaiah did not conceal this truth. His indictment would either strike fear in the hearts of the children of Israel, or provoke anger. So if I went up today and said, hey, everyone that's a rebellious child, you deserve to die. If I said that today and there were millions of people watching, just a few more than here, (laughs) I would get those two responses, right? I'd, I'd get a, yeah, amen. And I would also get a, how dare you? It hasn't changed. It hasn't changed. This is specific. These are specific charges that are actually very provocative when you think of what he's saying. Because in the first five verses that Daniel read there for us, Isaiah is laying out this idea that the whole scheme here is sin. This is the scheme. Your scheme is in sin. The secret alliance described by the prophet here as as this weaving web and a, a libation, really, of diplomatic relations openly defies the counsel of God. In verse 1, we see that. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but what? Not mine. Not my plan. So Judah's pride in this alliance only adds sin upon sin to the rebellion by trusting in the strength of Egypt and their protection, kind of hovering under the shadow of Egypt for their identity. The people of Judah are, are exposing themselves to coming shame and humiliation of, a, of an empire that's in decline. And Isaiah's word had to come just at the time, really, when Hezekiah's delegation from Judah was really reaching the Egyptian cities and and bowing before these minor powers, paying tribute to puppet kings 
rather than even Pharaoh himself, because these were two outlying areas and cities that are mentioned in verse 4, serve as an example, really, as the level to which God's people had stooped. You're like, hey, we, we, we aren't even comfortable with going completely to Pharaoh. We're going we're gonna to go to the puppet kings and pay honor to them, and hopefully they'll protect us. One of the things that you will see when you are in sin, when you are living in a way that God has said no, and first you have to know what God has said in order to know that it's sin, really, these people had heard God's word over and over and over again, so they knew. They knew. And one of the things that happens, and you will know this, you'll agree with me, sin adds to sin. Sin has a way of compounding itself. Once you embark on a path of rebellion in your life against God, you keep adding sins to it, don't you? It's like, okay, I've sinned, and I've, now I've got to do this now. I've got to cover this with this. And it just keeps adding building blocks of sin. Cheaters, for instance have to lie to cover their tracks. Liars have to cheat to avoid detection. It's just the way that sin works. Old Testament example, King David, after adultery with Bathsheba, he compounded his sin by scheming, by doing what? Adultery is already bad, right? To cover that up, i got to go murder someone. And the rebellious children of Israel are doing the same sort of thing as what Isaiah is saying. You're adding sin to sin. You're denying being God's people, really. You're denying your heritage. You're rejecting the love of God. You're, you're creating unholy alliances with pagan powers and and just really destroying God's covenant with them. And God says, I, I, I have no part of this process. This is what? What did he say? This is not my plan. This is not my plan. And verse 5 is very clear where it says, that shame is going to be the outcome. Shame is going to be the outcome. How many people here today acknowledging sin that you have done in your life, isn't shame always the outcome? I'm so ashamed of myself. I, I, I can't believe I, I've lived this life. I, I, I can't believe that I allowed myself to add sin to sin to sin. We're, we've, we've all been there. I mean, the Bible's very clear about that, right? All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sin leads to shame rather than salvation if you don't live in Christ and accept Him as Savior. And so we see in the first five verses there, the, the, the scheme is sin. The scheme 
is covering sin. And then in verses 6 through 7, as we looked there, it's, you, 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 you've got the sin going on and your trust is in the wrong place. You're trusting the wrong things. And it's really an elaborate description of really what the negotiating team that Hezekiah was sending to Egypt, it's showing how desperate they had become. So to, to try to get this Egyptian alliance, he sends his, his best princesses and, and senior ambassadors and, and leaders and de- de- a delegation that is the best they can send. And as you see in this, it says it sends them on donkeys and camels and a caravan and riches and treasures from Judah and Jerusalem, uh, and which really at the end of the day were just dinky compared to the wealth of Egypt. But they're trying. They're trying. And you may not catch this if you don't slow down and read this real carefully. Verse 6, the oracle concerning the beasts. The oracle concerning the beasts. Well, Scott, what do you, what's up with that? Isaiah's actually mocking them. That, that's, that's Isaiah mocking them. He's basically saying, I'm not even saying a woe to the ambassadors and the money. It's what about these poor pack animals? Woe concerning the beasts. He reduces this unspiritual trip to its true absurdity. He's, he's saying that the leaders of Judah are not even seeking anything that resembles the things above. They're not living their life underneath the protection of God. They're reverting to self-rescue. And they're going back to Egypt from which they escaped in the first place. It is reversing their salvation. Gambling the lives of delegates, the value of the tributes, the hazards of the desert. And in addition to these violent forces of nature, the land of trouble and anguish, lions, vipers, serpent. This, this caravan was being sent back for nothing. It was being sent back for nothing. One person said, this is one of the saddest pictures in all of Scripture. Isn't that interesting? You look at verses 6 and 7 and you may go, eh, they're going through the desert. Stinks. But actually, it's one of the saddest pictures in all of Scripture because Hezekiah's party represents a reversal of the exodus from Egypt. And he goes on in that section there to really quote one of the celebrated texts of Israel's history that every child would have been taught. You know, who led you through the great and terrible wilderness in which there were fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty land when there was no water? Who brought water for you out of the rock of Flint? It's Deuteronomy 8.15. And what Isaiah is letting them know, he's giving them key words. They remember the scripture. Oh, we went this way then. Now we're going back now. 
We're forgetting God, we're risking lives, we're wasting treasures, we're flaunting history. Hezekiah chooses as king to put his trust in an empire, empire that Isaiah mocks by saying this, this empire is Rahab. And there's a lot of different meanings that are attached to the word Rahab. But in this case, this means the sea monster of ancient who is identified with chaos, confusion, noise, powerlessness, and immobility. Literally, the name that is put here in Hebrew means Rahab who sits still. I'm going to give you a modern interpretation that someone wrote in a book a few years ago of this verse. And boy, does this sound familiar to our day and age. A modern interpretation of this phrase of Rahab is a big mouth that is a do-nothing. That's, that's a ton of people on social media. Right? It's, it's a... People hiding behind keyboards and shouting and screaming and saying their words. But the point here is that Rahab represents the folly and the futility of going backwards and trusting in Egypt. At the most smallest level of faith, Israel knows that God does what he says he will do. And they're still going backwards. How many of you in life have found yourself going backwards? instead of marching forward in Christ. I am so thankful that God is gracious. His message to all unspiritual people stumbling through life, and maybe this catches you, maybe you're stumbling through life right now, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for what? For your souls. Well, how do we do that in life, Scott? How do I find rest for my soul? Well, you don't run back to sin. You don't run back to what? doesn't work you ask some new questions who is not going to help me what is not going to help me what false savior has disappointed me again and again and has cost me dearly but i keep going back to it You see, the reality is that we long for something. And we long for peace. We long for peace that only God provides through Christ. Rest for our souls. Peace for our souls. It's hidden for us in, place, in plain sight. It's with Christ. It's free for the seeking. It's free for the taking to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. 
But no, people get stuck in a trust that is in vain. Isaiah moves on in verses 8 through 11 that we read there with the idea that, you know, hey guys, you are insulting God's word. When when the children of Israel refuse to hear Isaiah's word of warning, God instructs him to put his message in writing. This is very interesting. Basically, a double record on a tablet and scroll that would stand as a permanent witness against the people as a future reference, though, for teaching oncoming generations. Now, here's what's really interesting with this. And maybe some of you have seen this traveling through Los Angeles a few years ago. God instructed him to put his message in writing, a double record, so it would be intact, right? Complete. Wouldn't have to worry about finding it. Dead Sea Scrolls were found, and what was found complete? Isaiah. So word for word. It is unreal. Scholars were baffled. Unless they go back to verses 8 through 11 and realize God wanted to make sure that this was available for future generations as well, obviously. Isaiah's writings received a confirming evidence of their importance through the centuries Even just 70 years ago when the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Wow, that was pretty important. The whole thing was there. And see, God has a a good reason for instructing Isaiah to to write this message on a tablet or in, in a book. And see, against, also again, adding to the rebellion against God's word, they tried to turn the prophet's message into a lie in verse 9. I mean, read verse 9, for, for this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us with pleasant words, prophecy, uh, illusions. Get, get out of the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. There's four things there. First, they insist that the seers do not see. It's a confession of the truth. They do not want to see God's vision for their life. Second, the people tell the prophets, speak to us with smooth things. Luther translated this verse, preach soft. In other words, just half truth of God's promise. Whole truth, that includes his judgment. Prefer not to hear that. We had a very large organization two weeks ago meet with us at Child Evangelism Fellowship about putting good news clubs in all of their, or this organization's um, things that they do for kids. And they asked us, now do you have to say anything about Jesus? Could you just say something about God? What were they saying? Preach soft. Preach soft. 
because you could say God, and that can be a lot of different people's gods, right? You say Jesus, Jesus is one way. So we said, sorry, our middle name is evangelism, which means to share the gospel. So we preach Jesus. And they're like, oh, okay. Well, we guess we'll still have you come. (laughs) And we're like, yeah, anyway. God honored that, right? Preach soft. Don't tell me the whole truth. Third thing that they say there. It's asking, really, the prophets to deviate from the plumb line of truth. A message that's conditioned with bias. It's political correctness that they ask them for him for. And this is not new. When you hear the term political correctness, you can find it in Isaiah. Isn't it amazing when Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun? Sin just gets repackaged and thrown back out there by Satan. Rewrite the word of God and preach it soft. Fourth, and in order to sustain their lie, the children of Israel demanded that the prophet of God quit walking the streets. Quit appearing in the palace because his presence served as a constant reminder of the Holy One of Israel. It's like today. Hey, guys, and this is, this is the message today. Hey, you can believe in Jesus, but please don't go into the political realm and share Jesus. Don't share Jesus there. Don't, don't share Jesus on the streets. You could do it in your church, but not at my workplace. Don't do that. Don't do that. Just worship in private. Have you ever heard that before? That's what they were saying. Isaiah, I don't want to see you preaching this anymore. You see, what started as a refusal to hear the word of God has now become a need to eliminate the word of God from their sight. It's not good enough just not to listen. It is, I don't want to be convicted. I don't even want to have the chance to hear that maybe I'm wrong, that maybe I'm not living the way that God wants me to live. So what do you do? You get rid of the presence of the one that's sharing the truth. And that's really the final lie that sinners tell themselves. There's a little book. It's called Habits of the Heart. And in that book, it makes an argument that the people in Western culture, our culture, which I think everyone here would probably understand this and agree with this, that our culture is pretty much shaped by radical self-interest. And what has happened is that this radical self-interest is broken and is messed up and everyone's like, oh, I feel awful, I need a therapist. And this book makes the argument that because our culture is shaped by radical self-interest, 
there is this idea that therapy is going to help us feel good about ourselves after we've insisted on being what we want to be and doing what we want to do. This is what I want to be. This is what I want to do. It's not working. I need therapy. Great article by Banner of Truth says this, when therapy replaces faith, therapeutic techniques will be seen as the total answer to humanity's deepest needs and longings, and another idolatry has just been introduced. Therapy is idolatry. Fixing self without God. So with all the emphasis that we have in therapy in our culture and in churches, Isaiah might wonder whether we're trying to escape conviction, absolve the guilt of deceiving ourselves. Is the movement of therapy in our world another way of really saying verse 11? Get out of the way, turn aside from the path, let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. I can fix myself without God. And Isaiah moves from this explanation of all of that to say, there's a a price for all of this, right? There is a price for rebellion. I don't think there's anyone in this room that would say, you know what, there's no price to sin. There's no price to doing wrong. Now we have some leaders today that want to make it that way, at least in our area, where, oh yeah, do whatever you want, you won't get charged for it. But the problem is, is that that's not how God operates. You see, verses 12 through 17 talk about the punishment of God. A high price will be paid by those who despise the word of God, that trust in oppression, trust in just the weird, ugly way of this world. Three sins specifically against the word of God are listed. One is to despise the word of God, refuse to hear it. One is to oppress the word of God when seers do not see the truth. And the third is to pervert the word of God by speaking half-truths pointing in the wrong direction, stifling the presence of the prophet who symbolizes the Holy One of Israel. Why do people prefer disaster than the truth? Because it's kind of the essence of rebellion, everyone. It's the essence of rebellion. I'm going to do it my way even if it kills me. We would rather live a lie than face reality. After all, illusions make us feel comfortable and secure. Let's be honest. Truth makes you feel uneasy. When you hear the truth of what's going on or when you hear the truth of what needs to take place in order to change something in your life, change something in your community, change something in your church, whatever, when you hear the truth That makes you uneasy because that means you got to trust. You got to trust God. You see, the rebellious want to believe a lie, avoid the truth. 
And Isaiah likens all of this to what you saw it when, when Daniel read it there, to a wall that has a flaw running through the structure. And pressure from that weight of the wall causes it to open up and just blow apart. Many years ago, there was a dam up north of Santa Clarita. The dam was built poorly. And Mr. Mulholland was like, oh, that's okay. And then one night, the flaw in the dam proved fatal. Read the story. Flooding the Santa Clarita Valley, going all the way through where the 126 is now, all the way out through Ventura. Hundreds of people killed. All because of a flaw in the weight of the water did that dam in. Same picture here. The wall will collapse under its own weight, broken into thousands of pieces. If you go up there now, I believe you can find one little tiny remnant of the dam left. It's really bizarre. It's like, what is that little concrete thing? That's part of a dam. Of course, it's a mile down from where the dam was. There's nothing there. They ripped it to shreds. Thousands of pieces scattered across the floor. Verse 14. See, these are sad words, right? That's what life is like when you build it on something that can't withstand the weight of sin. And guess what? Nothing that we do can withstand the weight of sin. We can't sure our lives up around it. Eventually, what will happen? Cheaters get found out. Liars can't cheat enough. You know, it just, it, the news gets out. The truth gets out. In verse 15, you see an interesting saying, For the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. Basically, in returning, repentance is returning, right? In returning and rest you will be saved. He's actually switching the analogy of the Exodus again. You're fleeing back to Egypt what do you need to do? Flip it around and head back to me. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. You got to turn around, act of repentance, follow the way of the Lord. It will lead you back to the rest of the promised land. Isaiah is appealing to the, one of the most significant promises in Israel's history. The children of Israel started from Egypt, the trek across the wilderness. God promised in Exodus thirty-three fourteen, my presence will go with you and I will give you what? Rest. His rest stands in contrast with Rahab, who's the big blabbler that sits there and does nothing. There's no rest in that. God's rest is the Sabbath, Sabbath peace. 
That peace only follows his creative, redemptive action. Rahab's rest is paralysis. Paralysis of power that creates nothing good, only chaos. But here we have a return and rest. Call of God. It's the call of God on every soul that is running from his word. Israel chooses flight instead. Instead of quietness and confidence in the presence of God. You just, and Isaiah's just saying, you're adding sin to sin. And then sin multiplies as they rely on the swift horses of Egypt then for their safety. And their flight's going to be filled with fear as, they, as the threat of one or five will put thousands on the run. Only a small remnant will remain. And it's just going to be terrible. And all along, and verse 18 comes along, and says, in all of that, everyone, in all of that price of rebellion, there is a God that is waiting to show you His grace. It's really kind of typical of our humanity and His character. In the pivotal verse of this chapter, we see the mood swing from sin and judgment to grace and mercy. God's attributes jump out. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he wants, waits on high to have compassion on you, for the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. For those who who trust in God are willing to wait, God has blessings that cannot be counted. But our problem is the unwillingness to wait. We we join the children of of Israel really in the same devastating schemes so many times in our lives control trying to control our own destiny running from reality rather than waiting upon the lord well then let's figure out then what the promises of grace are in the rest of this chapter i'm going to have daniel read verses 19 through 33 and this is going to go laser fast, so you're going to have to pick it, pick pick this through very quickly. But we are going to we are going to look at the promises of grace because verse 18 pivots it and says, "This is what grace is like. This is what God's grace is like." Go ahead and read Daniel. O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left, and you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold, you will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, Be gone. 
Then he will give you rain for the seed which you sow in the ground and bread from the yield of the ground, and it will be rich and plenteous. On that day your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. Also the oxen and the donkeys which work the ground will eat salted fodder which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. On every lofty mountain and on every high hill there will be streams running with water on the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter like the light of seven days on the day the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from a remote place. Burning is his anger and dense is his smoke. His lips are filled with indignation and his tongue is like a consuming fire. His breath is like an overflowing torrent which reaches to the neck. To shake the nations back and forth in a sieve and to put the jaws of the peoples and to put in the jaws of the peoples the bridle which leads to ruin. You will have songs as in the night when you keep the festival and gladness of heart as when one marches to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord to the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his voice of authority to be heard and the descending of his arm to be seen in fierce anger and in the flame of a consuming fire and cloudburst downpour and hailstones. For at the lo- voice of the Lord, Assyria will be terrified when he strikes with the rod, and every blow of the rod of punishment which the Lord will lay on him will be with the music of tambourines and lyres, and in battles brandishing weapons he will fight them. For Topheth has long been ready, and indeed it has been prepared for the king. He has made it deep and large, a pyre with a fire with plenty of wood. The breath of the Lord, like a torrent of brimstone, sets it afire. So what we see here is one by one, God's blessings are revealed to Israel. Countering the rebellious attitudes of the past, Isaiah is seeing the day when the people who dwell in Zion at Jerusalem are going to be transformed by grace, by His grace. Verse 19, you're not going to cry. No more weeping. Yes, we will know moments when weeping and crying happen. But in that day, tears will be wiped away. Cries will be answered by the very gracious Spirit of God. Amen? Do we look forward to that day? Verses 20 and 21, Isaiah says, There's going to be in that day you will learn His word. The, the Spirit's going to whisper, this is the way, walk in it. Isaiah, I guarantee you, when hearing Paul's sense of discipline in Second Timothy, Isaiah was like, yeah, yeah, exactly. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The voice behind us as we walk is encouraging as believers. Like, like a compass always pointing to true north, the Spirit of God is constant in His guidance for the direction that we take and the way that we walk. So we will learn His Word. Verse 22, we will rebuke idols. Israel had been guilty of mixing obedience to God with sacrifice to idols. The worship needed to be purified. 
Isaiah links learning the Word of God with throwing away idols. If you really know the Word of God, you're going to blow up some idols. You're going to blow up all the idols. It's really like two stars on a collision course in the galaxy. Either the worship of God or the worship of idols must go. That's, that's what's going on here. So when, when God says, you shall have no other gods before me, he's setting the ground rules, right? Anything less than full trust in the sovereign God is a form of blasphemy against his nature. When God says he's a jealous God, he's not jealous because of competing gods. There are no other gods. What that means is that, that we frustrate the accomplishment of his redemptive purpose by following our own made-up created gods. For example, we said this last week and I'll say it again. It makes no sense that all of these different religions can be right. I mean, just from a practical standpoint, they all lead all over the place. And it doesn't make any sense at all. If Jesus says, I am the way and the truth of the life and no one comes to the Father except through me, none of the other faiths work right then. If Christianity is true, So, we have to agree on the primary principle of the Word of God concerning Jesus Christ. All attempts to short-circuit the redemptive process found through Christ are going to encounter resistance. But it's not just resistance for man. You know what it's going to be resisted by? God. God is going to say no to that plan. Right? He said that, he said that, a, very, that a plan's not my plan. Your plan is not my plan. My plan is my plan. That's Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus said, when he encountered resistance about his plan, what did Jesus say to one person? Get behind me, Satan. And we must say the same as we grow in Christ to the idols in our life. Get away from me. I will worship you no more. I will only worship God through Christ. And what does Isaiah say then? Your land will be healed. You will be healed. Healing comes with obedience to his instruction, the elimination of idols. The land itself will be healed. God will give rain in the land of drought for sowing the seed and reaping the harvest. It says large green pastures will provide grazing lands for herds of cattle, provide choice fodder for the oxen, young donkeys, the working of the ground. In verse 24, mountain streams will flow again and empty into rivers of life-giving water. Man, this kind of sounds like what could happen in California? Anyway, the moon and the sun, and maybe we shouldn't laugh about it. Could it be true that something's going on? Uh, 
what Isaiah is saying is living for God and well-being go hand in hand. Living for God and well-being for our souls in life go hand in hand. And he goes on to say that not only are you going to see that, you're going to see God act. You are going to see God act in verse 27 and 28. At the same time you are healed, God is going to bring the force of judgment against his enemies. Isaiah leaves no doubt about God's moderation in the punishment of Judah and Jerusalem. Yes, they're going to be conquered, exiled for punishment for sins, but they will return as a remnant. And the restoration of Jerusalem is a promise of God's grace that God reserved for his children. But for Assyria, for the people that don't follow God, it's going to be shaken and blown up. Desolate. You're going to see God act. And I would argue that in God's church today, we see God, God act all the time, change lives, restored souls, people who are whole in Christ. We see God act all the time. We see God destroy as well all the time. If your culture says fooey to me, I will let their culture become like a reprobate mine, and it's going to blow up, but I'm going to protect my people. And in all of that, we're going to sing a song. We are going to sing a song. I, I like singing. You may not like me singing, but I like singing. And when Isaiah turns to the future, what does he see for us? He sees a feast. He sees music, a song, gladness of heart. Because the victory is God's, the delight is ours. We, we don't always treat God as a loyal ally, ally in life, do we? But he's faithful. He's guiding his spirit is guiding. When our hearts are finally and forever drawn away from the false saviors and endlessly celebrating all of the self-sufficiency that our world throws at us, at the end of the day, we will know his name when we follow him. And you need to follow through in these ways, as we've seen here, as we wrap up. One, this is two two application points at the end of all of this. There's plenty of application, but just two more. Avoid any spiritual path that deviates from the gospel. Okay? The Spirit of God is the Spirit of truth, John 16, 13. I'll give you an example. If you go online... There are probably about 8 billion voices out there sharing their opinion about God and how to serve God, how to live for God, who God is, what Jesus is, all this, right? And it could be confusing. It is a ton of information out there. And as you well know, 
just because it's info doesn't mean it's right. And one of the things that you need to remember as a person that goes to this church here is you have shepherds. You have a church leadership. You have me. You have Daniel. You have our elders. That if you have questions on what people are saying that maybe you hear, you have questions on, are these guys true to God's word? Just ask us. And the beauty of that is, as many of you may know, I I have never written a book, so I'm not going to point you to my $20 book that I get royalties from. My my thing is I just want to see us all be right with God. Be true. And and we will tell you if, if that person is true to God's word, we may not know who that person is by any stretch, but I, we'll, we'll spend the time, trust me, we'll spend the time, we'll look around, we can sniff out weirdness. It, we'll do some research for you. And we'll tell you if these guys, and whoever it is, are biblical or not. But you need to realize we may not tell you what you want to hear. Because if we see problems, we're going to be honest. Because that's what a shepherd does. A shepherd cares for sheep. For family. And we'll, we'll, be, we'll be honest. Good, bad, or ugly. So, number one, if anything diminishes the scriptures, it is defective, run the other direction. Number two, as the Holy Spirit speaks to you through God's word about the false saviors that you have been following in your life that maybe you're aligned with, be honest. Break those alliances and lean on Christ alone. Trust me, everyone. He's a strong savior. And you don't need the junk of false prophets, false ideology. Trust in Christ alone. And that is where the victory is. That is where the victory is. And we will see God act. And that is the promises of grace found in Christ alone. And that is why we take communion to remember the price that Jesus paid so that we can be found pure and righteous in God's sight.